I founded Angan pretty much at the same time as you started Dasra, I think, maybe 20 years ago. And I remember sort of feeling my way around in the sector and asking, hey, you know, how do I raise money? How do I hire a team? What do I do next? And thankfully, I was pointed in the direction of Dasra. And I remember coming to your office and you had a three-member team. There was both of you and one other young man. You were in uh, your home. I think you're a little flat, beautifully done little flat in Kandivili, which is a suburb of Mumbai. I think you were working with maybe two or three nonprofits at the time. And on the day I arrived, you were really celebrating the fact that you had discovered a home service dumpa, which served fresh Gujarati food. And I was thinking to myself, wow, they're quite new to India. It's almost time for the 14th edition of Dasra Philanthropy Week. And so today on No Cost Extension, we're releasing a conversation that took place at last year's DPW. A conversation between Deval, Neera and Suparna Gupta, the founder of Angan Trust. Together, they look back at Dasra's journey over the last 23 years from its somewhat chaotic beginnings to their most recent thinking around rebuilding India. And now, on to the show. I think things have changed uh, drastically and dramatically in the last 22 years. You're now a vibrant team of 100. You now work from three to about 1,000 nonprofits and therefore have impacted close to 90 million Indians. And am I right? I hope I'm getting the numbers right. But uh, you've disbursed uh, more than $280 million since you started. And what's really remarkable, actually, in the last couple of years during the pandemic, when so many of us as uh, nonprofits were worrying about whether we'd survive, you've been able to disperse uh, $20 million raised and disperse it in response to the pandemic, especially. So congratulations in year 22, not only for surviving and thriving yourself, but also for making sure that your organizations and those of us around you who are at the ground level are also able to work. Uh, Devan, I want to start with you because I do remember working with you in our early years and your early years uh, when you were thinking about incubation. So tell us, how, where did the idea of Dasra come from? Was it a flash of inspiration? Did it grow slowly? Who did you tell? And what was the response when you started talking about it? I mean, one of the starts, of course, was just visiting India quite often while growing up, visiting family here in Mumbai uh, from the States and, and just realizing the stark difference between what I had and what, unfortunately, others did not have and just questioning how come such poverty existed and just arguing with my family and my parents, like, we should be doing more, right? Like, why aren't we helping these vulnerable communities out, given we have so much? And so that that sort of, I guess, sort of pushed me to graduate a semester early from college and, and work in Mumbai, at Mumbai Central, with an NGO, the Community Outreach Program, volunteering with children who lived in and around the pavements of, of Mumbai Central Station. And it was actually in that sort of experience, I learned very quickly while I thought I was the one who was going to go and teach these children, it was the other way around. These communities taught me about resilience, about compassion, about looking after each other. 
I saw a glimpse of society which I never saw before and, and was amazed every single day on how these children looked after not only each other, but, but anyone who came around them. These children uh, were feeding all stray animals on the station, were carrying literally each other on their backs as they went from, from, from Bombay Central to Dorkatkaki School about two kilometers away. Uh, and, and just really were thinking about what they could do for their own future and for their family, something, again, that was very new to me growing up middle class in the U.S. And, and so I think that was really the impetus of realizing that this is an area that I felt I could add value. It was up to me to sort of come to India and start Custer, really with the goal of being an NGO for NGOs and, and helping these communities not only survive, but ideally thrive. I like hearing you talk about learnings from the ground because I always feel that just stays inside you for your whole life. So I guess you started, I remember with us uh, incubating NGOs and really helping us start start off our work. But Neela, I wanted to ask you, how did you then after a few years decide to think uh, to move from incubation to capacity building? And I think you started thinking a lot about scaling. I know I worked with you when Angan began scaling and I was quite taken with how ambitious you pushed organizations to be. And Neera, when you answer, do address the concern that people sometimes have that, listen, why are we always talking on numbers game? Nonprofits are here to do good, solid work. We don't want to just keep talking about impact numbers. But what does numbers and scale mean to you? Uh, yeah, so I think both of us have our, our different journeys. In fact, I was a bit worried that Babel was going to disclose that the most the person perhaps who were, might have been most negative when he first brought up the idea of moving in New York, he's like, I have this great idea, you know, I want to support other NGOs, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to volunteer. And I remember my friends, Nina and myself, we were all having dinner together, we were walking, and I was like, you're crazy, you go do that crazy thing. And you know, I'm going to follow this path, you know, and that ended up being Harvard Business School. And the reason I bring that up is, I think my entry into Dasra, although it sounds very clinical, is from that angle, which was how can I work with and how can we as an organization work with leaders like yourself, Ungan, and others to help them realize their aspirations. And therefore, using management as that tool was fundamental to what started our ability in feeling that we could add value. So we could never be on the ground, mobilize communities truly where the real work is. And so we've always ended up being one step removed, but recognizing that if we could help leaders be better in their aspiration, putting down things like numbers helps them not only plan, but also creates alignment around vision. But I think what we've ended up doing and trying to beat our bridge builders so really trying to build the bridge to be able to represent all of your aspirations, Saparna, let's say for the community and the children that you really want to protect to those who have power, influence and resources. And so being that bridge builder, given you know, the warped view of the world that we have been in, just felt like we could play that catalytic role. And so when we started Dasra, you know, it meant, means enlightened giving in Sanskrit, but we always had this tagline, catalyst for social change. And I still think that that's extremely relevant, although it has, it has changed a bit as well. In 2009, we had generated quite a bit of wealth within India by that time. We had billionaires that were being announced. 
individuals that were starting to say, okay, well, now that I have all of this capital, how do I deploy it effectively? And that's really why we launched this particular forum is to have conversations where we can start bringing those who have access to capital into these conversations and meet leaders such as yourself and so many other phenomenal leaders that exist across the country and really through your voice hear about the community. And, and it was sort of then in 2015, after, I guess, working with givers and receivers, we started realizing that actually government also has a huge, huge role to play, especially when we're talking about the empowerment of adolescent girls or urban sanitation. And so then how do we bring sort of these three key stakeholders together, NGOs, givers, as well as government together, align on a joint uh, and collective vision uh, whatever that sector may be, and then actually working towards that vision, not as adversaries, but more importantly, as partners for, for, for collective action. So that's so separate, that's why we were very excited about the theme around convergence. It is about how the stakeholders like government, civil society, NGOs, and the private sector and funding come together, but keep community at the center. I think for us, uh, over the years, we've had to be very mindful of keeping that in the center. And I think this, this year we've decided that that absolutely must be the priority. It is about influencing funders and raising the funds, but it has to be enabling the voice and participation and ultimately the community being able to achieve, you know, what they, what they want and what, what they deserve. And we see the future all about this collaboration. And so, Cooperating and collaboration, I also see and we see as fundamental to management, you know, aligning all of these stakeholders towards the community's needs is really the purpose of DASRA. But, you know, you're talking about being in the, you know, being an NGO, but I have to say to you uh, that when you guys started work, uh, things were much more polarized. There was the funders and there was the NGOs and rarely the twain would meet. Um, and so did you, I'm wondering how you straddle both worlds, because um, was there a feeling that, you know, the, where the business and the philanthropist people sort of sort of uh, sector felt more like, oh, they're the bleeding hearts club. And did the NGO sector sometimes feel like they're pretty, you know, they're talking this business jargon. I mean, I've often said to you, hey, what are, what are all these words you are using? So how do you straddle both worlds and what do you wish that people got about you in, you know, as you work at the intersection? It's always hard to be there. So, so I think how we've straddled has changed as a result of not just us and our own learning and maturity, but also how the sector, you know, has moved. I think what really made us very uncomfortable, you know, let's say in the last five years, is that we were starting to be seen as elite that, you know, who are these accent people coming and who are they to think about trying to really bring change and any way they're sleeping with the funders. So does it matter? Are they really here in the spirit of the community? And I think that's where we would like as an organization to be better at addressing and really bringing out the voices and participation of community. And I don't think it takes away from the fact that we come from privilege. So I think just recognize, we don't come from wealth, like David was saying, and when I say we, I mean Dasra. We're not sitting on a pile of cash in the same way that other foundations do, but we still come from privilege, whether that's privilege of education, exposure, and access. And that's what we're saying, can we bridge that access just further down? And that's where you're seeing a lot more of Dasra's innovation, whether we're pushing our adolescents' work to be more adolescent-centric, 
or the launching of this rebuild fund, which is really about proximate philanthropy and leaders, investing in leaders we've typically never invested in. So we are taking a look at, does everything have to be in English? Can we have hubs that are not necessarily all about English, but much more relevant to those communities? So I think it's taking us a bit of reorientation and we're pushing ourselves to do that. But again, it's coming from where we're situated in the sector and how can we therefore make the most of that? And I think that's where we've turned to saying it's not about one-to-one relationships, right? It's not just about consulting. We never started Dasra to be in the consulting business. So even though we get compared to Sattva, we get compared to Bridgespan or Dalberg, there is a capability around that and a competency that is core to what Dasra does, but it is not a driving business for Dasra. And therefore, it is about bringing those capabilities to NGOs, how they think and frame, how families think and frame, you know, their giving, and ultimately how these collaboratives work. So our future really has two engines that are driving our work. One is around these collaboratives and how do we fire them up. We see many more collaboratives coming up. You see Edelgift starting a collaborative. You see Summitha starting collaboratives. We're going to need to start asking ourselves what does it take to be a strong backbone? And maybe Dasra is not the backbone to all collaboratives, but NGOs can start thinking about being backbones. Their future growth and ability to scale can be a part of running these kinds of collaboratives, and it takes a certain kind of DNA and capabilities, and that's really where we'd like to place ourselves. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's, especially in the last two years, I think we've all realized that um, there is such a wide gap between the haves and the have-nots, and that gap has been there from the beginning, but it took a once-in-a-century pandemic for us to realize that gap, right? And, and so marginalized communities, whether they were the informal workers that were locked out of their factories and their homes, are responsible for building the cities we live in, feeding our children, and, and making India where, where what it is today, yet we literally have ignored them. They have not the same rights as we do. They are not able to dial into Zoom. They are not given the same social protection. In fact, all companies give 8% of us that are in the organized labor force. So thinking about that, thinking about the minority groups who are further subjugated to greater oppression, thinking about the smaller NGOs, again, to Nira's point, who may not speak English, who may have not gone to the IIMs, and, uh, but, but are trying to make a difference and who are honestly in communities and focusing on challenges that the larger NGOs are no longer focusing on. Unfortunately, the sector has got to a stage where even the larger NGOs are saying, look, we need to meet quarterly numbers. And and whether that's driven by the short-sightedness of the CSR rules, which are pushing NGOs to sort of see results within a year span, or it's other funders that are coming to the table and saying, look, I want to ensure that learning outcomes improve by X amount by this day. A lot of the larger NGOs, many of them that we've also worked with, are now sort of saying we cannot go to the hard-to-reach areas. We cannot sort of focus on holistic solutions, which are held to scale, yet are needed, given the issues that exist in these communities are so integrated uh, in, in, in nature. And, and so for us, I think it's really about how do you go back to those NGOs that are community-led? How do you support them with unrestricted funding and capacity-building support, enabling them to be the next magic buses, Ungans, Educate Girls, and Armands of India? And, and I think on one hand, to Nira's point, I think we um, not knowingly, but definitely fell into the trap of going after individuals who I think looked and felt more like us. 
And and I think that was that was wrong. And and I think we're realizing that that we need to bring the community voice back. And if it's a messy model, if they don't have things in place, that's actually more of a reason for that sort of there, not less of a reason to be there. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting to sort of keep going back to learnings and there's trial and error, which are an idea we pull out and we try again. And it's interesting. I think it's the first time I've actually heard you guys uh, uh, talking about this this particular thing. But uh, you, you're talking a lot about working with different kinds of people. And in what way have you seen funders' interests and focus change recently? And how is it either helping or challenging what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, I, I guess to begin with, we all have seen in the last two years that whatever plans we had, and whatever funding we had um, clearly went for a toss. And while we, as a society, I would say, have been affected by COVID perhaps for the first time, most of the communities we serve have had their version of COVID forever. So today we're talking about, for example, enrolling kids and getting them into schools. But what happens when that slum gets demolished? What happens when electricity is not there for a week? What happens when water runs out? And so when we talk about flexible funding, it's actually giving the flexibility and authority to the NGO leader and their management team to make decisions nimbly to actually better meet the needs of their community. And it's not something that's a black hole. Uh, when we started out working with groups like yourself, Lucifera and others, I remember what we did, number one, was help each of you sort of create these three to five year plans. And so within that, you have a plan, you have a budget, and it's really saying the funding then can cover anything that's prescribed in that budget. Now, every six months, you and others will go back to your board and philanthropists and funders and say, look, this is how we're now pivoting because we've learned A, B, or and C. But you're also not as a foundation or as an NGO, excuse me, tied to sort of a line item that you decided three years ago that you still need to spend on now because the funder wants you to check off that box. And as ludicrous as that sounds, every NGO knows how funders come to you and say, no, 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 you said this much needs to be spent on that. You have to spend it. So NGOs are actually wasting time and resources in this guise of, oh, we're actually being productive for the funder, when reality is we know a lot of the issues that we thought we were going to focus on three years ago and the interventions for that may have changed and giving that entrepreneur the same flexibility that for-profit investors give for-profit entrepreneurs is all we're asking for NGO leaders. And then you're really a partner for change. And more importantly, you're enabling them to make decisions that are critical in 2022 versus what they thought the world would look like in 2017, 18, or 19. So um, I was just about to enter in and say, you know, to Nabel's point, what has always been fundamental to Dasra has been core funding to organizations. When we way back started the giving circles, it was all about flexible funding, use it and apply it to these plans and use it for all kinds of budgeted items. What is actually exciting where we are now with the Rebuild Fund is small amounts of flexible funding for them to spend however they need to, just as long as you know we're achieving the outcomes and having the impact and it's sort of on plan and achieving milestone, but really to give full flexibility. I mean, the biggest challenge here is educating funders that giving flexible funding to an organization means trust but you'll achieve far more than trying to constrain it all within these budgeted line items and constraining it even more with overhead, right? To run organizations effectively, I think is a really, is a big challenge. And so we do need to continue to change the mindset and influence funders 
to actually support organizations in a very fundamental way and pay for things that strengthen institutions and build institutions. I mean, that's what this, this country needs. And we've been doing that from, from the very beginning is educating funders on that. Timely and uh, sort of responsive funding is life-changing for an organization. You'll find more information about the Dasra Philanthropy Week on our website, www.dasra.org. Find us at dasra.org forward slash NCE for more details. Subscribe to No Cost Extension on your favorite podcast platform.